0: It's always such a joy to greet you in the name and the spirit of Jesus Christ, and never more so than on a gray, rainy day when it can't decide if it wants to sleet or snow or rain. But to have our eyes lifted, our hearts redirected to the one who has made us and who is worthy of our worship regardless of the weather, regardless of our circumstances. Our hope is in him. And today, News is coming out of encouraging numbers coming down in terms of the virus. We look to the spring with increasing hope that uh, we might find ourselves able to join together in larger numbers. Who knows when the day is we will be back to normal as we knew it. But let this be our rallying cry that the Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over all, and we belong to him. This morning, I'd like to bring your attention to a passage from Luke's uh, book of Acts. As we wrap up our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it is Luke's snapshot of Paul in Ephesus. And I'm going to be reading from the 20th chapter of Acts, beginning with the 18th verse, as a way of helping us appreciate the fruit of Paul's relationships this, uh, in this particular moment as he was taking his leave of uh, the Ephesian Christians. Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 32 and 36 through 38. Listen to God's word. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And then jumping to verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said this morning, we bring to a conclusion our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church with its grand vision and practical instruction for life, how we are to be as citizens of the kingdom of God. We have rightly been focused on the particulars of that little letter, Paul's vision and argument, his exhortations, and his encouragement to his Ephesian brothers and sisters. But this morning, before we take our leave, I want us to step back and try to see the bigger picture. To do that, I have taken us to Luke's uh, book of Acts, which is the second part of Luke's two-part vision of who Jesus was and about the founding of the early church. Because there he shares with us a view of Paul and the Ephesians that is different from what we get from Paul himself. Paul spent close to three years in Ephesus. You can find that account uh, mostly taking place during Paul's third missionary journey in Acts chapter 19. It's a dramatic account. It's full of conflict. There are riots and problems that come about as a result of the gospel having its impact in that pagan world. Paul contends with both Jews and Gentiles for the cause of Jesus Christ. Then we come to the tender scene of farewell, a part of which I have just read to you from chapter 20. The letter of Ephesians was written several years after that scene as Paul sitting probably in a Roman jail, was still worrying about his young churches. Surely he remembered the riot that took place in Ephesus, the contentious arguments that he had with his Jewish brethren over the meaning of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. How worried he must have been, given the sense of concern on display that shines through these verses in acts. I dare not expect you to remember what we have said about the setting in Ephesus. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan port city at the center of important trade routes. As you would expect, Ephesus had become home to people from all over the world, all different kinds of cultures and races and ethnicities. And yet the economy, in spite of its history, was beginning to suffer some insecurity. Why? Because the port itself, so key to the wealth of the city, was beginning to silt up. And there was no Army Corps of Engineers to keep dredging those channels to keep them clear for shipping. Today, the ruins of Ephesus are several miles from the Aegean Sea because of that silting that has continued. I think it's also important to remember that Ephesus was a home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of the fertility goddess Artemis. That was her Greek name, her Roman name was Diana. The temple dominated the landscape, and it cast its figurative shadow over every other religious contender, and there were many. And it was close, the temple was closely linked to the flourishing of the economy of the city. But the Jewish synagogue was also present with some influence. The diaspora Jews, Jews that had been scattering through the world since for centuries at this point, found themselves in urban centers, centers just like Ephesus, and there they established their own particular communities. And as we know, they took the faith of their fathers most seriously. So Paul would have all of this in mind as he wrote to these churches. Those concerns are reflected in his letter. He knew the church had its existence only by the grace of God. That little church was pressed by Jews who would have disagreed strongly with Paul. It was threatened by the hostile cultural forces that surrounded it. And the church had to be distressed by the influences that they could only attribute to the power of the demonic. By comparison, the church seems so small and so vulnerable. How does Paul respond? With three critical themes. First of all, you might expect that Paul would give them instructions about how to survive when they are under pressure but that's not what Paul does at all. Paul does, he goes big. Look at chapter one. Listen to the opening words of this grand little letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious name. And he keeps going. You and I would be wringing our hands probably, sitting in that jail, waiting to hear from our attorney, hoping to get sprung. But Paul, not only is he seemingly unconcerned about his own condition, But he speaks to this small group of believers who found themselves in beleaguered circumstances. He speaks to them with such confidence and assurance and such a cosmic vision of the God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving and gratitude are everywhere in this little letter. And why not? Unlike the pagan gods of old, the God we meet in Jesus Christ does not need to be convinced to care for us. He doesn't need to be manipulated or cajoled or placated. His intentions and his character, while not always as understandable and transparent as we would like, nevertheless are not in question. He is not a capricious God as the pagan gods and goddesses were. Instead, he has acted Before we knew our need, he has acted before we could ask for help. Paul opens the letter with these words, grace and peace to you. And he concludes the letter in the same way, grace to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And it's true between the opening salvo and the closing lines. Grace is everywhere in this letter because God is sovereign and free in his love. Paul's conviction of God's grace in Jesus Christ is rooted, of course, as we know, in his own experience. And it's that grace that leads to his second great theme in Ephesians. If grace is preeminent, if God has acted in Jesus Christ first, then those who worship this God are marked indelibly by that same grace as Paul was. Marked in two particular ways. First, we live all of life back to God in gratitude. This is important to understand because sometimes when we just read Paul's ethics, the commands, we're tempted to bridle and buck a little bit. But if we understand that God's ethics, his commandments are given to us out of his deep love for us, that they are conditioned by his concern first and foremost, not with the exercise of his own power, but with our own flourishing, out of his own vision of our becoming who he intended us to be, then even those commands that seem foreign to us, alien to us, hard to swallow because they are not current with our contemporary culture, if we begin to understand that all of life is given to us out of God's grace and we are to live all of life back to him out of gratitude, then we come closer to understanding how all of Scripture speaks of our relationship with God. Listen to the way Paul writes in Ephesians about grace and gratitude. To each one of us, he says, grace has been given. Surely you have heard about the grace that God has given to me. It is by grace you have been saved, by faith and that not of yourselves. It's gratitude, which is so alien to us, such an alien version to rebellious men and women. So alien to us that we have to force it from the lips of our children as they are growing up. Now, what do you say? We do so in hopes that they might one day recognize that everything they have and everything we have is a gift from a gracious God who loves us. It is a lesson that we will never not need to keep learning. So we seek to live all of life back to God in gratitude. And we extend that same grace to others. The church is meant to be this vanguard of grace in the world. The advance notice of a new kingdom that is coming, that is breaking in. A people gathered together with one primary conviction that all of us have been recipients of a grace that we didn't deserve. And because of that, all of us, Jew, Gentile, Democrat, Republican of any race and color, That we are on the level ground because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, for Paul, that grace is the ground of the meeting place for all who name Jesus Christ as Lord. It's that grace that names the meeting ground for all who would otherwise despise and hate or kill those who are not like themselves. Jews and Gentiles. All alike, Paul says, we are all debtors to mercy. Paul writes, all of us were disobedient. All of us were enslaved to powers greater than ourselves, gratifying the cravings of our sinful natures. All of us. But God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You see what he's saying? Every division, So sadly on display in our own country in in these recent months. Every division is a testimony to our captivity to powers who would destroy us. Because every division is a testimony to the fact that we think we can live by something other than grace. But the Church of Jesus Christ is where obedience to Christ in gratitude and humility is intended to shape a people who live by another way. In consideration of others, in forgiveness, in trust. So Paul writes, be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another because God in Christ forgave you. Live a life of love just as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. Or again, always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's grace that establishes our path of life together here at Blacknell just as surely as Paul intended it to do in Ephesus and in all those churches. Which brings us to the third great theme in Ephesians it is this. In Jesus Christ, we have a certain future, a future that isn't immune to death and difficulty, but is nevertheless confident of its outcome. Paul is living in that confidence, even in that Roman jail cell. He is living in that confidence as he reflects on his encounter with the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road. And he is living in that confidence as he writes to these Ephesians who are feeling pressed and uncertain. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That hope is a power, a power which God exerted in Christ, the Holy Spirit, when he raised him from the dead and seated him far above every ruler, authority, power, and dominion. And he placed all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. All things. All things. Pause for a moment. What are the challenges that you are facing in life today? God has placed those challenges under the gracious feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul insists that that same power that is at work in we who name Christ as Lord, the Holy Spirit, is going to bring us through to that certain future. He writes, "Having believed, you were marked in Him with the Holy Spirit, a deposit, guaranteeing." our inheritance. Three great themes. Uh, Each week we try to uh, include uh, a number of questions to to get you to reflect on the text that we are considering on any given Sunday morning. Those questions are below in the worship liturgy. You can find them uh, attached this morning to the worship liturgy. I would encourage you to take a look at them and then set aside a few moments because the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to read through the entire letter of Ephesians again and take note of these three themes where you, where you find them. These three themes and any other themes that you might find at work in this letter of Ephesians. These three great themes reflect three great passions. The greatness and glory of a God who is, un, is conditioned only by his love. The grace of of that God to act in Christ to redeem us and call us into a new life together as the vanguard of grace in the world and the assurance of a future whose promise is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the presence in your life and in mine of the Holy Spirit of God. Gosh, I love this letter when I myself am prone to shrinking my life to the problems and concerns and the uncertainties that plague us. How we need this kind of vision of a God who has acted, of a God who has come, and of a God who will see us through. In that Acts passage that we began at the beginning of the sermon, Luke tells us that Paul and the Ephesians parted in tears which can only be a sign, I think, of their recognition that every single one of them had been bound together by a grace, a gift that they did not deserve. Eugene Peterson tells the story of reading to his four-year-old grandson. His grandson jumped up into his lap and he looked to his granddad and he said, Grandpa, tell me a story, but put me in it. When was the last time you cried tears of gratitude for the gospel gift of grace that we have received in Jesus Christ? Because the great story of Ephesians is your story too. Amen.